Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, I want to begin tonight by telling you a story about a high-powered executive. His name's Darren King, and he accumulated millions and millions of dollars, and he lived in luxury. He had this gorgeous mountain estate up in the woods, in the mountains. And the problem with Darren was that many years earlier, he had had an affair on his wife and cheated on her, and it never seemed to go away. And so his sexual past had major influence on his adult kids. So he had three grown children. So, so Darren King had three grown children, Austin, Tamara, and Anderson. Now, Anderson and Tamara were true blood brothers and sisters. Austin was the stepbrother. But it was very interesting. I mean, Anderson was the stepbrother. Um, Austin had this intense and unnatural lust for his stepsister, Tamara. He, he really couldn't sleep at night knowing that he could not have her, and it just plagued him so much. And so Austin just had this unnatural love for his sister, his stepsister. And so Austin had a good friend named Jared, and Jared always seemed to be coming up with good ideas. And so Jared was really the one that was the influencer. He was the one that had all the good ideas. Um, he hatched all these plans. And so he hatched a plan for Austin to be alone with Tamara. So he, he said, let's do this. Let's pretend like you guys, let, let, let's make it look like you got injured when you guys go hiking. So they go on this hiking trip, and Austin and Tamara are kind of going up in the mountains, and Austin fakes an injury. He fakes like he breaks his leg, and he falls down, and he, he fakes it, and she comes over, and, and she tries to find out what's going on, and then when she bends down to see what's going on, he grabs her, and he attacks her, and he rapes her. And she is really upset because she's been violated, and he's really upset that his lust for her has now turned to anger, and he hates her. So she's humiliated, and she goes home, and she tells her dad, Darren King, what's happened. But her dad can't do anything about it because he's had a sexual past. He feels like he doesn't have any moral authority to talk about this, so he just is kind of silent. But her blood brother, Anderson, wants to get even. And so he's fuming because his sister has been violated. And so he wants to get revenge on Austin, the stepbrother, who raped his sister. And he waits two whole years before he's going to do something. So he says, hey, Austin, let's, let's go on a hunting trip. So they decide to get all their buddies to go on a hunting trip. So they go on this hunting trip, but he sets it up to where one of his buddies would accidentally, quote-unquote, shoot his brother, his stepbrother. And so basically they're around the campfire, they're in the woods, camping trip. Anderson secretly hates his stepbrother Austin because he raped Tamara. He gets his stepbrother Austin drunk. And Austin begins to wander around in the woods drunk, and sure enough, his friend hiding in the bushes, fires a shot of the rifle, and murders Austin. Now, word gets back to Darren King, the dad, 
that his son has murdered his stepbrother. And so Anderson, fearing for his life, catches the next jet out of the country and hides out in the Caribbean. Okay. Does this sound like a soap opera to you? Does it sound like a Lifetime movie? (laughs) Lust, rape, revenge, murder, all in the family? Okay. It's actually a true story. I've just changed the names. Instead of Darren King, it's King David. Instead of Anderson, it's Absalom. Instead of Tamara, it's Tamar. And instead of Austin, it is Amnon. And it's in, in Jared's Jonadab. <laughs> so I've, I've changed the names. But I want you to remember what we talked about last week. When David sinned and committed adultery with Bathsheba, he was forgiven, but what did Nathan the prophet say to him? You will have consequences you're going to live with, and the sword's never going to leave your house. You're going to have problems. So, chapter 13 of 2 Samuel has one central theme, and this is the theme. The catastrophic consequences of sin prove devastating, especially in the family. So David commits adultery. David has Uriah murdered. David thinks he gets away with it. Nathan the prophet is sent to David. He tells that little parable. David gets mad and Nathan says, you're the man. And then we saw Psalm 51 where David confesses his sin to the Lord. And so I want us to backtrack just a little bit before we get into chapter 13. So hopefully you have your Bibles open to 2 Samuel 13, but go back to chapter 12. And I want to read to you what Nathan the prophet says to David after he tells the parable and David finds out that he's the man and he, he realizes he's the sinner. So let's go back to verse 9. 2 Samuel 12, verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. David, you're forgiven. But the consequence you have to deal with is the sword will never leave your family. In other words, David, your family from here on out is going to be plagued with violence and treachery and conspiracy among your own family. And in the very next chapter, we see it play out among his adult children. So, Let's read 2 Samuel 13, and let's just read verses 1 through 22. The story's pretty straightforward, and it's almost like I told you that made-up story about Darren King living off in the hills and his grown sons and camping trips, and here we're going to read the real account, okay? So, 2 Samuel 13. Now, Absalom... 
David's son had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he had made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his side and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cake she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. That Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Okay, a pretty sordid story, a pretty wicked thing that happened. And so what I want to do here is I want us to look at the five characters who are in this story this narrative, and just look at the perspective of each of the five people that are involved, and let's find out what the Bible says about each of these five people, okay? So let's first start with Tamar, and 
this is how I'm going to describe Tamar. She was lusted after, but not listened to. She was lusted after, but not listened to. Okay. She is, this is a terrible thing to happen to any woman. She's trapped, she's physically violated, she's raped, and she's kicked to the curb, and basically she has to live in the misery the rest of her life. Now, if there is anything that jumps off the page in this story, is that the only voice of truth or reason or godliness is from the lips of Tamar. She begs Amnon to stop, and he does not listen to her. So in the same way, we need to listen to Tamar today. What does she have to say to us? Because she's the only voice of godliness in this entire story. Now, obviously, this is incest. Now, stepbrother, half-brother, okay, brother and sister. All right, so Absalom and Tamar are blood brother and sister. Amnon is stepbrother, okay, from a different mother. But still, they're all David's children. So they're not blood, but they're, but they're stepbrother and sister, but it's still forbidden, okay? Leviticus chapter 18, according to Israelite law, Leviticus 18, 9 through 11, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, for the nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. Now, uncover the nakedness is just a, a technical way of saying you shall not have sexual relations with a brother or a sister. This is incest. So, it would have been doubtful that David would sanction or approve any, any marriage here between these two. Okay, so she's trapped because Amnon is lustful after her. Now, look at verses 12 and 13. What does she say to him? So the, the, the plan's concocted. He fakes like he's sick, and he sends everybody out and says, come here, come close so I can eat out of your own hands. And, and when that happens, basically he grabs her and says, you know, let's basically lie with me. And so look at what she says in verse 12. She answered him, no, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold you from me. Her, the first word out of her mouth is what? No. No. She emphatically says, no way don't violate me. Now, one of the things I, I actually have this underlined in my Bible because she says something very interesting. She says, what you're about to do is an outrageous thing. Does your Bible say outrageous? Okay. This is a key word in this Hebrew text, outrageous. In the original language, it means corrupt, ungodly, wretched. In other words, what she's saying is, Amnon, if you follow through with this, you are going to be an ungodly wretch. Okay? Now, this is rape. Okay, we're going to be real honest with the text. This, he violated her. Okay. There are other times in the Bible where rape happened. 
And every time rape or something very, very demeaning or brutalizing sexually, that Hebrew word is always used, outrageous. So she's probably thinking about what happened in Israel's past. All the way back in Genesis 34, Shechem raped Dinah. So let me read this to you. It's, it's on the sheet there. So back in Genesis 34, this was way, you know, hundreds of years before this, and so she's probably remembering the stories that she heard growing up about her ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all them. So now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, so this is Jacob's granddaughter, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob. I'm sorry, it's Jacob's daughter. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom he born to Jacob, went out to see the woman of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamar, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they had heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. So previously in the Bible, when somebody raped somebody, a man raped a woman, it was called an outrageous thing. And so what Tamar's probably thinking is, I remember that story being told about our ancestors and how it was called an outrageous thing. And she's saying to her, to, to Amnon, don't do this. This is an outrageous thing. This is a wretched, ungodly, corruptible thing. Now, also in Israel's history before this, during the time of the judges, another, out, another time the term outrageous was used was in Judges 19. Now, Judges 19, hopefully she's asleep. <laughs> Judges 19 is the most R-rated passage in the entire Bible. Okay? In Judges 19, there's a homosexual group of men. They come as a gang. They come and they want to... Um, have sex with the Levite priest at his house, have the priest come out and commit homosexual sin, but the Levite says, I'm not going to come out, but I'll send my daughter out, and you can gang rape her, and they leave her for dead on the doorstep. Okay, this stuff's in the Bible, by the way. Judges 19, um, 23 through 24. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. So, basically, don't, don't, have, homosexual, don't have homosexual sex, but you can go ahead and violate the woman. But either way... It's called an outrageous thing. So it's no accident, I think, that Tamar knows these things in part of Israel's history. The worst, the worst sexual brutality and abuse 
in, in Israel's history were called an outrageous thing. And so she tries to stop Amnon by saying, don't do this outrageous thing. But what do we find out in verse 14? But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. This is a classic case of no means no. When a woman says no, that means no. And so he did not listen to her. He violated her. He raped her against her will. She was lusted after, but not listened to. Now, notice what he does in verse 17. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now, you don't get this in your original language. The ESV kind of makes it a little, it cleans it up. It's, the ESV says, um, get this woman. But in the original language, it just says, that there's no this woman in the original language. It basically says in the original language, get this out. The original language doesn't have woman. Get this out. And I think that's purposeful. She's been reduced to an impersonal it a piece of trash that can be tossed to the curb. So she's been trapped. She's not been listened to. She's been ignored. She's been raped. And then she's been cast aside like a piece of trash and the door bolted. The worst way you can treat any woman, he has treated her because he had lust for her. And here's what's sad. Look at verse 20 and 22. What's she wearing? She's a virgin. Okay, She's a virgin this whole time. So not only does he rape her, but he takes her virginity. So in verse 20, her... Um, da, 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 da. Okay, I'm sorry. Verse, I'm sorry, look at verse 18. She was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and locked the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. She is royalty, but she's wearing the virgin robe, the long white virgin robe. And what does she do? She rips the sleeves off of the virgin robe as a symbolic way of saying, my virginity's been taken, I've been violated, my, my womanhood's been ripped from me, and I've been cast out. And so how does it end for Tamar? What does it say? In verse 20, And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. I hate to say it the way our culture would say it, but basically she's damaged goods. And she's been violated and she has to go live with her blood brother, desolate, the rest of her life. Now, when this happens, we're supposed to be shocked and sympathetic. 
And we're supposed to feel for her and hate the sin and hate what was perpetrated for her. So here's my question, and hopefully this does. Does the treatment of Tamar bring you to righteous anger and to tears when you see this? Does, does this make you mad? Especially as a woman, it should make you very mad. But as a man, it should make you mad too. Twice in this narrative, she's not listened to. It should jump off the page that the only person in this entire account who says anything godly, who is following the Lord, who's doing the right thing, is the woman. And she's saying, no, don't do this. This is outrageous. You're going to be a wretch. This is outrageous. And so basically, I hate to use the word, but she's silenced by violence. She's kicked to the curb. She lives in desolation. So we should look at this and say, this is heartbreaking. This is devastating. This should not happen. But let's back up. What did Nathan say was going to happen in David's house? You're going to have violence. The sword's not going to leave your house. You're going to have consequences, David, because of your sin. And so, like father, like son. Okay? So that's Tamar. She was lusted after but not listened to. And it should shock us to see how she is so brutally and ungodly treated. She's silenced. And it should bring us to tears and it should bring a holy, holy anger to us. Okay? Now, let's, let's look at Amnon, the stepbrother. He's lustful without love. He's lustful without love. Remember, we're, we're looking at the, these characters. Now, obviously, Tamar's drop-dead gorgeous, because go back to verse 1. Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. Okay. She's described as beautiful. So, obviously, she's probably a drop-dead gorgeous girl, and she's always around Amnon. She's just always around. Look at verse 2. Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Okay. It's impossible for Amnon to do anything to her. Now, that's a very, that's a very like, leave it out there. It makes you question, if you, hadn't, if you just stopped right there and you hadn't read what we just read, the question you'd be asking is, well, what did he want to do to her? Why, what's the impossibility that's driving him to this lovesickness? Well, what happens? Okay, so, so he is tormented. He's lovesick. He's tormented. I have to have my stepsister at all costs. And if I don't get her, even though she's a virgin, even though it's an outrageous thing, I'm going to die. I'm so lustful. Okay. What happens after he violates her? Look at verse 15. After he rapes her, after he finally gets her, what, is he, what, is, what happens? Verse 15. Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. That one passage of Scripture has the word hated. Hatred shows up four times. So he lusted after her 
to the point of being tormented, tormented with lovesickness. But then when he finally got her, those intense feelings of guilt and shame for doing the outrageous thing overtook him so much that he hated her with the same intensity that he formerly lusted after her. So what was once lust now turns to hatred. I lusted after her. I needed to have her. Once I raped her, I realized I'd done the outrageous thing that I shouldn't have done. And instead of repenting and realizing he'd done an outrageous thing, he turns that humiliation, he turns that sin on her as the object of his scorn and says, I'm going to hate you more than I lusted after you before. Now, let me just ask you a question. Do we sometimes see Amnon's attitude glamorized in our culture today, popularized? Movies, music, media. You have a lustful man who wants to control women, and then when he's done with them, he kicks them to the curb like a piece of trash, and then with a bunch of bravado, he moves on to the next target. I mean, I, I'll tell you, you know, growing up as a, as a young man, you hear the locker room talk about how guys talk about girls in the locker room. And so that attitude of, I'm going to do whatever I can to get the girl, and once I'm done with her, I'm done with her, I'm moving on to the next girl. But with him, lust turned to loathing. Now, here's the thing that should have happened. He had a duty now that he had violated her according to the law of God. If a man had sex with the virgin, not pledged to be married, he was obligated to marry her and pay a financial penalty. Okay, Exodus 22, 6. Team. If a man seduces a virgin who's not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make him his wife. So according to Israelite law, what should Amnon have done at that point? I sinned. I violated her. But according to law, I have to pay restitution and I have to take her in as my bride. Because she's a virgin, not betrothed to anybody. I've got to pay the bride price. So does he have any concern for her whatsoever? What does he say? Get this piece of trash out and bolt the door. I don't want her banging on the door and coming back in and trying to win my heart over. I don't want to see her at all. So he rudely puts her out like a piece of trash. Second time, verse 16. After he says, get up and go and get out of here. Okay, so the first time she says, stop. She's not listened to. He rapes her. Second time, after raping her, he says, get out of here. And then she says in verse 16, but she said to him, no. Second time, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. She kept saying, no, 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 even after being raped. And he did not listen to her because he was inflamed with lust initially, and that lust turned to hatred. So Amnon is lustful without love. Tamar was lusted after without being listened to. Okay? Now, 
There's another character in the story. Amnon's close friend, Jonadab. Jonadab is intelligent without integrity. Intelligent without integrity. He is skillful without scruples. Okay, so look at verse 3. So you got, you got five characters we're looking at. So we've looked at Tamar. We've looked at Amnon. Let's look at Jonadab. Okay, verse 3. Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. That's how he's described. A very crafty man. Shrewd. I went back and looked. He's the only person in the Bible that's described this way. Person. I say person. Who else was described as crafty? Satan in the garden. So this man, is, he's very crafty. He's, he's a conniver. He's shrewd. What kind of crafty wisdom does this guy have? James 3, 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Okay, does James 3, 14 and 16 describe this entire chapter? Every vile practice. You've got selfish ambition. You've got bitter jealousy. <clears throat> you've got demonic stuff going on. Now, he's, he's kind of got demonic intelligence, if you will. He's crafty, but he has no integrity. He's intelligent, but he's not a man of scruples. And so he concocts this plan. He says, Amnon's not smart enough, I guess, or not a man. I mean, Amnon's kind of passive here. So Jonadab says, hey, buddy, I got a plan for you. It's real easy. Act like you're sick. Act like you're sick. Feign that you're sick. And go tell your dad, hey, I really want my sister to come comfort me. She brings me a lot of comfort. So go ask David if, Amnon, if, if my sister Tamar can come in <clears throat> and have her bake some cakes for me and have her just kind of pamper me and love on me because she's my sister after all. So, so concoct this plan. And then when she comes in, send all the servants out so you and her are alone. And when you and her are alone in the room by yourself and you're acting like you're sick and you're, you're weak, she won't think you're a threat because you're weak and you're acting like you've got a fever and all this stuff. <coughs> have her get real close to you and say, hey, I really want you to feed, you know, I want to eat out of your own hand, you know, you know like play it up. She'll have sympathy for you because you're sick. You know, play it up as best you can. Play the sympathy card. And then when she's the most vulnerable, sorry, when she's the most vulnerable, then you spring it on her and then you can make your move. So he's the one who hatches this plan. He's the one that's pulling the strings. He's the one that concocts this whole thing. So in a way, Jonadab could be considered the most dangerous man in this chapter because he's the one that's kind of behind the scenes doing everything. Now, he doesn't commit rape, and he doesn't commit murder, but he's the level-headed man of supposed wisdom and insight 
who orchestrates this entire episode of deception. Amnon is lovesick. He's infatuated. He's not thinking. Jonadab is cool, cool to collect. He's like, I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm going to hatch this plan, and I'll be cold and calculating, and, and, and I know exactly how you can do this. And I hate to say this, so I'm going to say this and take it, take it for what it's worth. Jonadab is almost like a pimp for Amnon. He's the one that's willing to disgrace his cousin Tamar. And by the way, did you notice the, did you notice the relationship here? Who's Jonadab's uncle? Did you, did you read it? Go back at verse 3. Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. Who's David's brother? Shimei. So Jonadab is David's nephew. David's his uncle. So he's willing to dishonor his uncle. He's willing to dishonor Tamar. He's willing to do whatever he needs to do to make his friend happy. Amnon, you're full of lust. You can't figure out how to go in there and rape her. Let me, let me just map it out for you. Here's what you need to do. And he comes up with this evil plan. And so here's kind of what we need to think about with Jonadab. Beware of intelligence without integrity. Beware of those who, quote, have good ideas and may be popular and may can get things done, but they have no character. Just because someone's intelligent or someone has a good plan or somebody appears to have it all together doesn't necessarily mean that they're godly. They may not have any character whatsoever. Okay, so we've seen Tamar. Tamar was lusted after but not listened to. Time after time, she said, stop, don't do this. Don't do this outrageous thing. Please don't. Stop. She wasn't listened to. She was violated. She was raped. She lived a desolate life, brutalized, terrible. Amnon, lo lovesick, lustful. He had no scruples. He was just intoxicated with love. When he committed rape with Tamar, he hated her with more hatred than, than he was infatuated with her before. Jonadab, the, 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 the nephew of David, the, the friend who kind of concocted this whole thing, cold, cool, and collected. But there's a fourth character, and that's David, King David. And here's what we find out about David. There's one statement. He was passive without punishment. David was passive without punishment. All we see in David, look at verse 21, okay? When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Move on. He got mad. He's angry. Okay. Yes, he should have been angry. But is that enough? He's the king and he's the dad. And he's the uncle. What should he have done? He should have intervened and executed justice. He should have fought for the violation of his daughter and made things right as king and as dad. But here's the thing with David. He remains a passive father with no moral authority to speak into the situation because he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. What's David thinking? 
If I go in and punish them and talk about them, what are they going to say? Well, Dad, what, what about you? We know what you did. You committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered. What right do you have to come and tell us how to live our lives? You're no better than us, Dad. So don't tell us about how to, to live our sexual lives when you've done just as bad as we've done. All it says is that he got angry. Passive, no punishment. So Amnon is not held accountable. Okay, if, let me just say this, dads, if your son rapes your stepsister or your stepson rapes your sister, should you do something about it? Yes. If you're the king, should you do something about it? What, what's, what makes me mad here with David is that Tamar is not even addressed or given anything from her father. He doesn't deal with it. And because he doesn't deal with it, he puts the situation right in Absalom's lap to exact revenge because his father doesn't deal with it. If David would have dealt with it right then, things would not have gotten as worse as they, they would have been. So one writer has said this, Amnon remains an unpunished felon, Tamar languishes as damaged good, and Absalom becomes a seething vigilante. Now, passive without punishment. There is another Old Testament story about a passive father who did not deal with his wayward children. Do you guys remember Eli the priest? Remember Samuel when he was a little boy, was under the tutelage of Eli? Eli had two sons, two wicked sons. Okay, Eli's sons were priests. And here's what they did. At the temple, at the tabernacle, at the front of the church, they had sex with prostitutes and they cheated people out of food. So it'd be like, this is a really weird thing, so don't take it too literally. It would be like Pastor Andrew and I opening up Emmanuel Baptist Church and just bringing all the prostitutes in here, having sex, and then you know, cheat, taking all the money from the offering plate and, and taking it for ourselves. And my dad and Andrew's dad the whole time know what we're doing and just sit back and say, well, you know, pastors will be pastors. <laughs> That's just what they do. They cheat people for money and they have sex with prostitutes. That's what pastors do. So Eli, the father of the two sons, knew they were doing this, but he doesn't do anything about it. So 1 Samuel 2, by the way, I need to backtrack. Andrew and I would never do that, and that doesn't happen. I hope you understood the, where that illustration like, is, is a way out there illustration that's not true. It's just a way to... Yeah, I figured you'd know that. So. All right, so 1 Samuel 2, 22-25. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear your evil doings from all the people. No, my sons, it's not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading about abroad. Someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for them? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. <coughs> Excuse me. What does Eli basically say? Um, I'm old, 
And sons, I hear that you guys are sleeping around with prostitutes in the front of the tabernacle. Is that true? We really shouldn't do that. I hear these reports of what's going on. You probably shouldn't do that. Does he do anything about it? No. He's a passive father that lets his sons get away. And, and as a matter of fact, if you go back and read the story, little Samuel has to go to Eli and say, God's going to judge your household. And he doesn't want to tell Eli that. And Eli's like, bring it, you know, bring it on. Tell me, what, tell me what the Lord says. And Samuel's like, you guys are going to get judged. And your sons are going to be put to death. <clears throat> and that's the first prophecy Samuel as a little boy has to give because Eli was passive with his sons. David is passive with his son. So what have we seen so far? Tamar lusted after but not listened to. Amnon lustful without love. Jonadab intelligent without integrity. David passive without punishment. Okay, but that's not the end of the story. Let's continue reading what happens. Okay, so we, we leave off with Amnon got away with rape. He hates his stepsister. Absalom, the true blood brother, is basically saying, I'm going to keep this on the down low, but I hate my stepbrother, and I'm going to take revenge. So let's see how this plays out. After two full years, this is, we're, we're in 23, verse 23 now. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, go but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. And the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadad, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young men who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voices and wept. And the king also and all of his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmah, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. But Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. 
Okay. Let's turn our attention to the last character in this narrative, and that's Absalom, the blood brother of Tamar. He is a man who displays rage without restraint. Now, here's the interesting thing about Absalom's rage and his hatred. He hid it pretty well, didn't he? How long did he, how long did he, did he hide it? How does, how does verse 23 start? After two full years. So he, he gave no public clues he was angry. He gave no indication that he was going to exact revenge on his stepbrother. He was cool, patient, and calculating for two years. Because maybe Amnon thought immediately Absalom's going to take revenge. So he's always looking over his shoulder. Maybe after like a year, he's like, okay, maybe he just forgot about it or he's good with it. So he waits two years. That's a long time to wait for revenge. But what do you think Absalom's doing in those two years? I've got to plan this perfectly so it goes off without a hitch. I want my stepbrother dead, and I don't want to be the one to be incriminated, so I've got to plan this. So there's this sheep shearer festival, okay? So like the, the, the sheep, the, the shearing of the sheep, I guess they all get together. They have a big festival. There's wine, and it's kind of a party. And so um, this is the time for him to have revenge. And so he asked the king for permission for Amnon to come to the party. And, and David's clueless. It's like, oh, that's not a big deal. David probably, wouldn't he be thinking, what's Absalom want to do with Amnon? David's still kind of clueless here. So what does Absalom do to his stepbrother? Gets him drunk. What did his dad do to Uriah? Got him drunk. Did David pull the trigger, per se, to kill Uriah? No, he had it made it look, it made it look like he died in battle. Did Absalom pull the trigger, per se, to have Amnon killed? No. He had his servants do it. So Absalom is acting just like his dad. He's getting him drunk, and he's getting others to do his dirty work. So basically what ends up happening is, um, verse 28, Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon and kill him, do not fear, I have commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's son arose and each mourned, uh, mounted his mule and fled. So get him drunk. He's intoxicated, doesn't know what's going on. And when he's pretty much out of it, you strike him and kill him. Okay? Now, news gets back to David. Somehow the news gets back that all his sons are dead. And David freaks out like everybody's dead. And he starts to mourn. And then Jonadab comes in and says, now wait a minute. No, that's not the right story. Just your one son, Amnon, is dead. Not all your sons, just, just Amnon. And so um, now it suddenly hits Absalom what he did. I've got, he's waited two years to make this plan. But then it finally hits him. Um, I'm going to be found out. It's going to be traced back to me. So what does he do? He flees. He and his buddies flee to Gesher. He panics and he lives, he hides out for three years with, with the king of Gesher. Now, who is the king of Gesher? 
his grandfather. His grandfather. Now, Absalom was in line for the throne, ready to be Israel's next king, was living in exile in an area some 80 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Okay, so there's the narrative. Let's just recap what happened. You got three children, two blood children. Tamar and Absalom are blood brother and sister. Stepbrother Amnon is inflamed with lust for Tamar. Jonadab comes in, concocts a plan, hey, act like you're sick. You know the story. He rapes her. He hates her. She's kicked to the curb. She's the only one that has a voice of reason in here. Um, Amnon should have been punished. David is passive. Absalom concocts this plan. He has his brother killed. He flees for his life. There's mayhem. The, the, the family of King David is unraveling right in the very next chapter. This is the, the chapter right after the chapter where he commits adultery with Bathsheba and, and kills Uriah. So that's the story. And that's the five main characters, but let's just ask some questions about application for us today. What do we see jump out on the page for us today? What are the applications for us today? The things that should have just jumped right out at you. So here's number one. No one is acting righteously in Israel except one helpless woman who's silenced. Who's the only one that's honorable in this entire narrative? It's the poor woman, Tamar. How are the men portrayed in this? Lustful, conniving, jealous, treacherous, and passive. Is there anything good about men in this chapter? There's no, at this point in chapter, if you just take chapter 13 as a snapshot, there is no godly male leadership in Israel from the king on down to his family. No godly male leadership. So when males abdicate their roles as husbands and godly fathers and godly leaders in the church and society, all manner of evil happens. More than ever, we need men to step up to the plate and be godly fathers, godly leaders, godly husbands, godly men, courageous men. Men with wisdom. What do we see right now in our culture? I'm just going to say it right out loud. And you may disagree with me. Online you may disagree with me. But I've got a microphone and i got the camera. And so who's going to stop me? Okay. So I think there's a lot. This is what I think. Okay, I may be wrong. I think there are a lot of passive men out there that are afraid to stand up and be courageous. They have an intention to do so, but when the rubber meets the road, they don't have the courage to protect women, to protect children, to be godly, to stand up. We're seeing a little bit more and more of that, but for the most part, we're really living in a culture of passive men. And you see that front and center in this passage of Scripture where no man from the king to his sons to his nephew are acting in godliness at all. Who's the only godly one in this chapter? Women. Who suffers the most when men are not leaders? The women and the children. 
Men are supposed to be the protectors. Men are supposed to be the leaders. Men are supposed to take the spiritual charge. And when they abdicate that, when they don't do that, when they act in ungodly ways, not only do the wives and children suffer, but the entire society suffers. So that's the first thing that should jump out to you on the page is there's no godly male leadership in Israel at all. The only voice of godliness and of reason is from this poor, helpless woman who's violated. Okay, now, number two. This should have jumped out to you on the page. God is eerily silent. Is God ever mentioned in this entire chapter? Is anybody praying to God? Is anybody talking to God? Is God giving commentary? Is God sending a prophet? Now, it's not that God's absent because God's everywhere present and God's orchestrating things. But what does it tell us? God being quote-unquote absent from this chapter. When the catastrophic consequences of sin begin to unravel in families, who is almost always left out of the equation? God and his wisdom. Now, God is there. How do I know God is there? Because God's always there. But what had happened in chapter 12? What did Nathan say to David? You're going to have to deal with the consequences of your sin. God is orchestrating the consequences of David's sin in this. So this is God's discipline coming to David's house in full HD plasma color. Think about David's sin. Think about the consequences of David's sin. How it parallels what happened. Amnon's rape of Tamar was a flagrant sexual sin that parallels David's sexual sin with Bathsheba. Now, I don't think David raped Bathsheba. I think it was, you know, he was in a position of power, but I don't think anywhere in the text it says David raped Bathsheba. We definitely know that Amnon raped Tamar, but either way you look at it, what David did, David sinned sexually against a woman in adultery. His son sinned sexually against his sister in rape, like father, like son. Absalom planned the murder of Amnon, corresponds to David's planned murder of Uriah. Son number one follows David's sexual sin. Son number two follows David's murderous sin. So you could say it this way, David. David, what comes around goes around. What goes around comes around. There are catastrophic consequences to sin that devastate your family. And so it looks like from a human perspective, God's absent. God's nowhere in here. But we know God's there. God is disciplining David the way Nathan the prophet said it was going to happen. He's not abandoning David. He's just letting this play out because he promised to discipline David. Now, let's turn in your Bibles to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 12. So turn to Hebrews, New Testament. I'm going to get a drink of water while we're all turning there.
What did Nathan say to David? The sword's never going to depart from your house. You're going to have to deal with the consequences. The Lord's going to discipline you for your sin. All right, is everybody in Hebrews chapter 12? All right, let's look at verses 5 through 11. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we much, not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here's the point. If you're a true child of God and you sin, even if you confess that sin and you repent of that sin, there still may be consequences that you have to deal with. Or if you've sinned and you haven't repented, God may discipline you as a way to get your attention. Now, discipline is different than punishment. God does not punish his children because the punishment was taken by Jesus on the cross. He doesn't punish us. But God disciplines us, meaning that God can orchestrate things in your life to get your attention, to get you back on track. So if you're walking in unrepentance and you're walking in flagrant sin and you are a true believer, you are a true child, God may say, I'm not going to, I love you too much to let you go down this path, so I'm going to do something very, very difficult in your life, hit you with a two-by-four or whatever to get your attention, to get you back where you need to be. Now, there's two things God could do. God could let you go down that path of sin or God can do something catastrophic to get you back to where he's at. What's more loving, to let you go down the path of sin or to do something to get you back? Okay, to get you back. So God loves us, and if you're a true child of his, he may discipline you. Now, why is he disciplining you? Why is he doing this? Well, Hebrews there says in verse 11, it does, it's painful at the time. It's not pleasant. It may be painful. You may have to deal with the discipline, but what is God doing? It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Ultimately, God's doing it for your good so that it, it births holiness and righteousness and character in you. Or as we talked about earlier, the crucible. It, bring, it brings you out of the, the crucible. Um, so, when God's disciplining us, He's training us, He's growing us to be more like Jesus. So think about this. When God is disciplining you, He's not abandoning you. He's actually loving you. I've told this story before. When we lived in Colorado Springs, we lived in a parsonage behind the church, and the church was right next to Black Forest Road. And Black Forest Road was one of those roads where 
you could have semis go down about 60 miles an hour, or you could have a little person putting about 40. So it, it was, a, and, and so um, Aiden was three when we moved there, and Zachary was newborn, and so they built a fence so that Aiden would be protected, okay? Now, it's loving for me to build a fence so that my son doesn't go run into the, to the yard or to the, to the street. What would happen if my son got out of the fence as a three-year-old and he starts walking close to Black Forest Road with a semi coming? What's the loving thing for me to do? To yell and scream and go grab him and pull him back as fast as I can. That's the loving thing to do. Because if not, what happens? He gets hit. Okay. If you're about to be hit by, by sin and walking down that big path of sin, sometimes the most loving thing God can do is yell and scream at you and go get your attention and yank you back. And in the process of yanking you back, it may hurt and startle you and get you off kilter, but God's doing it because he loves you. So discipline is done not because God's abandoning you, but because he loves you. So here's the thing. You may think because God is absent from this chapter that he just abandoned David. God did not abandon David, but in love, he's disciplining him to become more godly. And God may do the same thing to you. So, let's just ask a question. Hopefully nothing this dramatic happens in your family, but when things begin to unravel and you must deal with the consequences of sin, what do you do? You're dealing with the consequences of sin. What do you do? Well, I think a little bit is from what we talked about last week. You confess and own up to sin like we saw last week, and you receive God's forgiveness. That's the first thing. But you may have to, number two, endure the discipline of the Lord because he loves you, and it may be painful. But... This painful discipline, what is God doing? He's teaching you repentance so that you don't sin again. Okay, your, your Bible still open to Hebrews chapter 12? Okay, how, how does that chapter begin? Go back and read the beginning of the chapter. So let's go back and read Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. I'm actually start with verse 1. So Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Okay, so, so run the race with endurance. Get rid of sin in your life. Verse 2, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Looking to Jesus, or some translations say fixing your eyes on Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from, sinful, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Okay. How do you not sin? <laughs> big question, isn't it? How do you not sin? Well, let me tell you what I think the writer of Hebrews is telling us. When you see Jesus in your mind on the cross, suffering and dying, you realize how horrible sin is, and it was your sin that put him there. And so, not just your past sins, 
that you've already committed. But think about the sin you're about to commit. We need to see that any sin we commit or are about to commit was what put Jesus on the cross and it's an affront and assault on his infinite love for us as sinners. So when you want to sin, look to Jesus and realize the suffering he went through is because of what you have already done and what you may do next. So the only answer for the power and motivation for you not to sin again is to fix your eyes on Jesus, think about the riches of the cross, how sin is an offense to God, and how Jesus loved you so much that he paid the price and died in your place to pay for that sin. Now, I will say this. Every sin has consequences to some extent. But sexual sin has more dramatic consequences, especially how it impacts families. And God will discipline you out of love because he's doing it for your growth. And so when you are disciplined and God does that, it may be painful, you may not like it, but God's doing it because he, because he loves you and he's wanting you to fix your eyes on Jesus as your only hope because Jesus loved you and Jesus died for you and as a motivation for you not to sin because you see in your mind's eye Jesus suffering and dying for that terrible sin. Does, does that make sense? So how do you not sin? You think about the cross. You think about Jesus. You think about what you're about to do is an affront to Jesus and that why would you do that against your Savior and that the sin that you've already committed is what put him on the cross and what you're about to, to do is just a, gr a grave thing that, that sin is such a big deal to Jesus that he had to die for it. And so um, we learn from this chapter God's not silent. He's just disciplining David. All the men are ungodly. There's only one voice of godliness. It's a woman. And I think you're supposed to come back. I think you're supposed to come away from 2 Samuel 13 with a punch in your gut. Like, is this really in the Bible? This is kind of sickening. This doesn't sit well with me. And it shouldn't. But it's, 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 it really happened, and it's the direct result of David's original sin that he committed with Bathsheba and then having Uriah killed. All right. That's all I've got for tonight to milk out of this chapter. So do we have any questions or comments or clarifications of things that I maybe didn't make sense with? David would have learned his lesson? Pardon? That David would have learned his lesson? Yeah. Easier, yeah, I mean, we would think that David would learn his lesson, but like I said, when he sinned so grievously, even though he confessed his sin, sometimes he probably felt, I don't have the moral authority to do anything about this because I'm, I've sinned just as badly and they're going to throw it back in my face. 
I'm not saying that's right. And we should, David should have learned his lesson, but, you know, he's, yeah. Any questions online? Okay. It just goes downhill from here, guys. <laughs> well, not too bad. It's just Absalom kind of rebel. We'll see that in the next few weeks. Yeah. Anything else? All right, I shall pray for us. I know this is kind of, this was not an uplifting, like, oh, wow, I'm going to go away encouraged by this. You go walk away like, there's a lot of sin in the Bible. But I think we need to be realistic with what the Scripture has and deal with it head on and, and make us think and, and evaluate ourselves. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful this passage of Scripture is in, the, is in, your, is in your Bible, and we know it literally happened, and it's wicked, and it's disturbing. And Lord, I think it's meant to be because it just shows us the consequences of sin running rampant, whether that's the sin of lust or the sin of rape or the sin of murder or the sin of conniving or the sin of passivity, all these, the sin of not listening. Lord, there's so many sins that show up in this, and it really shows the consequences that David had to deal with. And so, Lord, help us to say no to sin. Help us to fight sin and to say no to sin and we know the only way we can do that is through your power through your holy spirit through your strength and through your grace we can't do that in our own power help us to always keep our eyes fixed on jesus look to jesus lord jesus you're the only one that can that can rescue us from our sin and and lord help us to endure that discipline when that time may come that we have to be disciplined help us to know that you're doing it for our good that your ultimate goal in our life is for us to be more like more like jesus and so help us to receive what you have for us Help us to glorify you in all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.